You're now in the Jazz Tacker podcast. Laura's very excited to have our 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 guest, Mr. Victor Minash, on with us because I was actually um, on his podcast not too long ago. For everybody who's watching or listening, make sure to check out the uh, uh, description for for Victor's podcast. It's the Real Estate Espresso. Um, it really is for me. It like it. It felt like that because we only went you talking about that one. You said you really enjoyed it. You thought the name was so clever. the name was the, like it's one of the coolest names for yeah. our podcast. I thought actually our podcast name was cool, which is Jazz Tech Our because it's my name. But um, that I really enjoyed because it was like a quick little shot of real estate. It was packed with with tips and strategies. And Victor's a very very savvy investor been doing this for a long time i know you were taking some time earlier today um and late last night to just kind of go over all the things that victor has done and maybe you know couldn't come at a better time i was gonna say today it's very timely that we have you on our podcast today victor i'm not sure if you've heard what's been going on with rogers today i'm well i'm very glad to be here for (laughs) one so thanks for having me and yes it's a very boy we live in interesting times we, yeah, do. we do. We do. Rogers is down for all those who are listening uh, after the fact. Uh, it's been a, a couple hours at least and, and everyone's losing their minds trying to get on phone calls and texting people. And we actually have Victor here who used to work for Nortel, if I'm not mistaken, correct? correct? And correct. and you were you were designing chips for them. So at one point I would have blamed you for this. Madness, <laughs> but I guess you're not in the business anymore, so I can't place the blame. <laughs> well, Rogers actually never used Nortel equipment. They used equipment mostly from Ericsson. Oh, uh, interesting. Interesting. So, Victor, when did that switch happen for you into real estate? Was real estate kind of always in your blood? Is it is it was it taught to you by family? Like, t- t- let's take our listeners and viewers back to how it all started, like how, like why real estate for Victor? It's interesting because when I was a teenager, if you had asked me what I want to be when I grow up, I would have said an electrical engineer. In truth, I didn't know what that meant. So, but I knew that that's uh, what I wanted to be. We don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I got out of university, got my degree in electrical engineering and immediately started designing microprocessors. And frankly, that was some of the most fun I've had in my life working with crazy smart people uh, all over the world, designing very complex systems, very creative. When you're working in such minute detail, it's it's just fascinating what you can do when you're designing chips. And, uh, you know, fast forward a number of years in my career, uh, rose through the ranks into senior management, both in public and private companies, did a number of startups, acquired IBM's embedded microprocessor division, ran that business for a number of years. And then uh, towards the end of my career in the tech industry was working on a cellular network in Japan for uh, one of the carriers there. We were building the next generation of wireless technology, traveling back and forth to Tokyo a couple of times a month. And that 13 hour flight to Narita airport, it's not just the length of the flight, it's the time zone change and spending you know a couple of weeks a month in, in Japan was just turning my life upside down. and decided it was time to do something different. And I had been exposed to real estate all my life in in one form or another. My mother was actually the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. And she did some landmark buildings in Manhattan. So, you know, whenever you go back to the city, you get to see all these buildings that my mom worked on. So it's kind of in my blood. And if I hadn't chosen electrical engineering, probably something to do with construction and architecture would have been a close second. So that's now, how I got here. Take me back to the time when you 
made this massive change? Because at this point in your career, you've kind of like made it probably in, in, in that industry. Was it a hard decision? Did it come quickly to you? Like, was it just you woke up and said, I can't live like this? Because we're always talking to people who are saying, I want to make changes, but I'm scared. And I don't know if I should. Did you just follow your gut or how did that go down? It was a couple of things. I, saw, I was looking at other opportunities in the tech industry as well. And at that point in time, the industry was going through a lot of transition, especially in the world of hardware design. Because if I said to you, if I came to you as an investor and I said, I need $50 million to design a new chip, and maybe by year four, we'll break even, maybe by year five, we'll make a profit. Are you lining up for that investment? No. Not many people would. <laughs> no. But that is the reality of the, of the industry. So unless you have the depth of pockets of a Samsung or an Intel or someone like that, it's very tough to make a go of it in that business. I'll give you a very simple example. It was an Israeli company called Surf that was the first company to master the single chip GPS solution. So the global positioning. So the if you know do that as a single chip. Up until then it had been a five chip set with Rockwell and then a three chip set but they mastered getting it on one chip and then they owned the market. They went public on the NASDAQ. They literally swung for the fences and they hit it out of the park. And all it took was an announcement from Intel that they were going to integrate that function into the notebook chipset and that killed the company overnight. When they finally got taken private, they had an enterprise value of 180 million and $224 million cash in the bank. So their value of the company was negative, less than their cash position when they got taken private. So that said to me, man, if you're in this industry, you can swing for the fences, you can hit it out of the park, you can go public on the NASDAQ, and you still can't survive three generations. It's just too hard. So where else could I go? What else could I do where you don't have this kind of consolidation, where people, where, where the fundamentals of investing make sense, where you can build some wealth, you can do something of significance, and, you know, we're not down to three dominant players in real estate. We just aren't. But if you look at so many other industries, we're down to a duopoly, a monopoly, you know, two or three dominant players. And real estate's not like that. Now, j just so our listeners and viewers kind of get the scope of how long you've been doing this for and where all the data is going to be coming from, because we're going to dive into that that knowledge that is in your brain because you've been doing this for and successfully for a very long time. Victor, when when did you make that switch from 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 working with Nortel and, and saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start looking into real estate as as my vehicle? So I made the transition out of the tech industry in uh, around the 2009 2010 timeframe. And that time frame is significant because that's right in the wake of the meltdown that was happening in the United States. I literally saw the opportunity of a lifetime. Now I had been dabbling in it and I had bought a bunch of condo apartments and put them in the mid short term rental market long before Airbnb existed and had done a bunch of rent to own projects and various things like that, but it was still relatively small scale. And I really saw the opportunity, especially south of the border, as the opportunity of a lifetime, which it was. Now, why talk to our viewers and listeners? Why did you see that as a as an opportunity of a lifetime? Because what was happening in terms of values on the state side? What made you jump to go there? Anytime you can buy properties 
for a third of construction cost. When fundamentally the demand hasn't evaporated, what, what, what changed, this was not a real estate cycle. It, it, it was a debt bubble. And so what happened was you took a bunch of debt out of the system and that's what created the crisis. It was a financial crisis, not a real estate crisis. It precipitated into the real estate markets, but that was temporary. And the proof of that is when lending opened back up again and they figured out how to underwrite deals again and all of that sort of stuff, values pretty much restored to where they were pre-2008 levels. It was all driven by supply of money and for the lenders to figure out how to lend. They had they'd lost their way. We didn't experience the same downturn here in Canada because our the way we underwrote loans was fundamentally sound. Well, back back then, I mean, I was still in the business. Um, I got into the business in 2005. We were talking about, and Laura, were you in the business in 2008, 2009? No, I had just graduated from university. So I was just entering the workforce and the whole end the world collapsed. Yeah. So lucky me. I'm so glad I have a degree that's useless. But I remember talking to clients and clients here in, in Canada and specifically the GTA, and they were all freaking out that what was happening in the States was going to happen in Canada. And yeah, we caught a little bit like we, we, we started coughing and sneezing a little bit from the cold that the States caught and maybe in today's yeah, recording, like, it's not the best analogy to use, but the viewers and <laughs> listeners get where I'm going. But we just don't lend money the way that Americans specifically did back then. I mean, if you could walk to walk, talk and chew gum at the same time, you were able to get a mortgage and you didn't need to show anything where here in Canada, I mean, you can be employed, you could have great credit, mm -hmm. you could have savings, and they still put you through the ringer when it comes to getting mortgages. Yeah, right? you know what, prior to that, um, I have family and, and friends who are in the US and they always seem to have so much, you know, yeah. like their houses were big and they had TVs <laughs> and all the new technology and everything. And I remember being so envious of them when I was younger up until this point. And then I thought, eh, maybe we don't have it so bad. <laughs> well, I mean, I think Canadians are definitely a lot more conservative in that sense. But then to what Victor's point is, I mean, you get to see um, a, a, a lot of opportunity. You get to, you possibly, sorry, let yeah. me rephrase that. You possibly can take advantage of a lot of opportunity. What types of properties were you investing in back then in the 2010, 2011 time, Victor? This is the humbling part of the conversation because if I knew then what I know now, I would certainly would have approached things very differently. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. I did not capitalize on it anywhere near the potential that it really represented. So I started out, like many people, flipping houses. And look, I had raised a lot of capital. I had taken one company public. I had um, you know, done a number of private placements, uh, done five different mergers and acquisitions. And I, like many people, started at the bottom doing individual single family homes, when in fact, I should have been going after larger portfolios. So I, I look back on that time period, got in with some of the wrong partners. Uh, there were, I remember waking up one day saying, wow, all those great deals were badly managed and that was a waste of two years of my life. Now, I ended up learning lessons that I thought I already had learned in previously in my career, yet it seems that I had to go through that learning process again for a second time. It was very humbling. 
to fast forward to today, I really am very, very careful not to get in, really pay attention to who you have on your team. It's everything, everything, everything. It's not about the deals. And at that time, I was making it too much about the deals. Now, Victor, a lot of people talk about that, right? And we do a lot on this podcast, like yeah. from a from a real estate perspective, we, we, we call it your real estate all-star team. But we also talk about it from a business perspective, a life perspective, like you are probably going to be uh, uh, the average of the five people that you hang out with, audit who you spend time with, um, the importance of your network because it will determine your net worth. So these are all great messages and, and, and even what you spoke about, but what would you have changed about how you went about choosing that team? Like, what was it? And like specifically about certain partners, like, so this way our viewers and listeners don't, don't make, make the mistake. same mistake yeah. that you've made. I've made Laura. We've all made the same mistake. Like sometimes I, I like, you know, I don't know if Laura is the right co-host for me. I'm just playing. I mean, people love her raspy voice. Um, she probably same mistake daily. Yeah. She probably <laughs> says that about me more than anything else. Um, but so people don't make the same mistake. What would you have done differently? I think the number one mistake that I made was going after projects that were too small. And, and I ended up attracting partners that were in that space, in that mindset. So, you know, you've got, there's an entire spectrum of folks in the business. At one end of the spectrum, you've got two guys in a pickup truck. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got all of the big boys. You've got Tridel, you've got uh, great golf. You've got all the big established players, Gazzetti and so on, to use, you know, Toronto examples. And it's those folks that are at the opposite end of the spectrum. And then there's a bunch in the middle. Now, if I'm approaching someone like a Tridel, why do they want to do business with me? What do I have to offer them that's going to be a game changer for them? Probably very little. But maybe there's folks who are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum where I can bring something of value and they can bring something of value to me that would be complimentary. Maybe I offer them an extension into another market that they're not part of or something. It's a matter of finding those right relationships and focusing on cultivating those relationships. And it takes time. It really does. It doesn't happen overnight. If I was to go back and do it again, I would have focused more of my energies on that rather than saying, oh, wow, this one's a deal, you know, shiny penny syndrome. Wow, this one's, you know, a third of construction costs. Let's go snap that up. So how do you analyze a deal now? Because I'm sure, like, as you mentioned, you've learned some lessons along the way. So when a deal does come by your desk, what is the criteria that you use to determine whether you go forward with it or not? Well, first and foremost, is there a stream of investment in that particular location? So look, whenever you perform due diligence on anything, this is for all of your listeners, you got to look at three things. You got to look at the specific submarket. Really understand the dynamics of that submarket. Number two, the team that you've got in place, and number three, the specifics of the deal. So you got to look at all three of those independently. So if if the fundamentals of that submarket make sense, great. Have you got a team boots on the ground that can execute? If not, how do you form that team? You're not going to put that team in place just for one deal. It makes no sense. So you've got to see a stream of investment. And then finally, you look at the specifics of the deal. So if you're going to be in any geographic area, look at it from the perspective of sustainability. So pick a market, any market. You might say, I want to be in Cambridge, Ontario. Okay, here we go, Cambridge. Is there a stream of investment here? Do we have the right team? And then you can start finally to look at the specifics of the deal. Right now, we're very active in Boise, Idaho. 
third fastest growing city in the country. Uh, we see a lot of opportunity. They're out of development land in the core of the city. We're buying up and you know, entitling residential subdivisions towards the periphery, doing very well at it. Uh, but it started with the right team. Now, when you speak about sub-markets and, and, and what the investment, like when you say look for what investments are going in there, are, are, are you talking about like what are commercial developers doing and like where the big money is moving? I want you to elaborate a little bit more on that, Victor. What are you looking sure. for using uh, Idaho, Boise, Idaho, as an example, as a case study? It comes down to a few things. You, you know, we're looking at jobs. So the number one determinant of housing demand historically has always been jobs. Uh, if, so if you look at net migration, what has driven migration over, over the years? It's been jobs. Um, it's been climate. So, for example, the southern states, the number, do you know what the technology was that enabled the U.S. to grow in the southern states? Can you guess what it is? Air conditioners. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> 1902, the Carrier Corporation invented the invented the air conditioner. That's what, if you go back to the early 1900s, you know what the population of Miami was? Like 4,000. Wow. Entire Miami-Dade County. If it weren't for the air conditioner, Miami would not be a city of 2 million people. Wow. So that was a technology that enabled migration. So then the next question is, are there other technologies that we're experiencing right now that are enabling migration? Arguably, I would say the what we're recording on right now with Zoom yes. is, one of those tech, is one of those disruptors that I think is going to enable migration. Maybe not on a huge scale yet, because a lot of people are still anchored to their place of employment. But we're starting to see that separation where people can say, you know what, my boss can be in Manhattan and I can live on that acreage with a view of the mountains. That wasn't possible before. It is today. Let's go into that a little bit more because I, I, I kind of have my opinions on it as well. I definitely want to hear yours and and, and please also uh, uh, feel free to uh, uh, pipe in here as well. In terms of what we're experiencing right now where, yes, the boss can be in Manhattan and you can be in Florida, you can be in Miami. Do you like what, what's your thoughts on office space now? Like, do you feel that people are going to go back into the offices? Do you feel like, well, you know what? I can like I did work in Manhattan and now I want to I would rather be in Miami, but I still want to have my job that's based out of New York. But, you know, I think a lot of the trends that we're seeing accelerating right now stat, started pre pandemic. For example, I did a lot of development in Philadelphia and for whatever reason, there were a lot of New York accents in the Philly market. So what was driving that? If you had a six-figure income and you lived in Manhattan, you had a roommate because that's all you could afford. Mm -hmm. Now, they put in the high-speed rail. In an hour and 10 minutes, you could be into Penn Station. And if you, so you could live in Philly for a quarter of the cost or a fifth of the cost and have a better quality of life. And if you needed to go into the city a couple times a week for a meeting, you could still do that. And it'd still be pretty time efficient, less than a commute crossing the George Washington Bridge if you're driving in a car. So that made it, that opened things up. So th these trends were already underway. If you look even in the Toronto area, some of the major law firms like Norton Rose, they're skinning down their footprint in the, in the core in downtown Toronto. Now, it doesn't mean that they're sending everybody home. They're not eliminating the office, but they're reconfiguring it. 
They're going to put a lot more conference rooms. They're going to have a lot more hotel space. So you're not going to have your files permanently in your own dedicated walled office. Your, your files might be at home. They might be all electronic files, perhaps. But they're, they're reconfiguring, and they'll save a couple million a year in rent just by reducing the floor count in some of those towers that they currently occupy. Well, see, Laura, I'm on to something when I'm telling you guys to save everything on your Google Drives and not have, you're always asking like for cabinet that. space. I'm old school. What I got you a little roll away here beside <laughs> me that you can put your files in. Uh, just for my own knowledge, what's the state tax in Pennsylvania as well? I mean, I think that could that have some, does that have something to do with it as well? Because obviously in New York, you're paying close to 50, 60 percent. Well, yeah, taxes in Pennsylvania are not dramatically different from New York State. I wouldn't okay. say that it's a huge difference. Uh, it's not like Florida where there's zero state income tax. Uh, there's a lot of people with New York accents living in Florida right now. First, starting with second homes and eventually moving permanently. I mean, look, you've got folks that have moved from California to Florida. I'm thinking of guys like Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. I mean, he moved from his little castle in San Diego to West Palm Beach the state of California bought him his place in Palm Beach for free, just with the just with the tax savings. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, just with the tax savings. I mean, Elon Musk has done the same thing. He sold all of his real estate holdings in California. He, in the public filings, they're saying that he was going to exercise about a billion dollars worth of stock options this year. With the new high income tax rates in the in California. He would owe the state of California 168 million. Now, as a Texas resident, would you move to Austin, Texas, for 168 million? I would. Definitely. Right. So yes, there is absolutely tax migration. There's no question about it. These are the tax problems I want to have, by the way. Yeah, I just know. as a side note. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good problems to have. Well, it's funny to watch what the governor over there in New York is doing because they're so increasing. I mean, the last report that I read maybe about a week ago, it was that they're strongly considering increasing the state tax as well. So it's almost like they don't want to fix this problem of people leaving. Like, what's your thoughts about specifically Manhattan? Because you got your foot to the ground in the states as well, way more than we do, Victor. I'm just curious on your thoughts. Like, I mean, to me, New York after Toronto, and I'm going to, it's because I'm biased. I'm born and raised here. I think Toronto is the best city in the world, but I mean, New York is New York. Like, do you see people not coming back to Manhattan? Here, here's the thing. And so my parents lived in Manhattan for 25 years. So I know it very well. Um, you know, my mother designed buildings there and um, it's, will the wealthy still go there? Some will maintain their, their place there. Yes, there's no question. But will they maintain permanent residency there? That's not clear. I mean, my uncle who owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, he lived on Fifth Avenue overlooking Central Park. But he was a Florida state resident. He had his place in Palm Beach. Right. So he spent enough time in Florida that he was not paying income tax to the state of New York because it made a difference. At a certain point in time, it, if it makes a big enough difference, people will make the move. And when you look at where the tax base is coming from, it, it's not coming from the, the, you know, the greeter at Walmart. It just isn't. Um, it, it's coming from the folks that are creating businesses and creating wealth and, and all of that. So, you know, you can look at the tax code as a way to extract revenue from the population, or you can look at the tax code as a series of incentives. Hmm. I think Definitely. both are true. 
So, you know, you look at the rules and what, what incentives are the rules creating? A good old fashioned loophole. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious, a lot of our, our listeners are from Toronto or they're Toronto investors. We've spoken a lot about Manhattan. What are your thoughts on Toronto? Like we don't always follow the same rhyme or reason as Manhattan. Like, would you be investing in Toronto right now? Or are you kind of thinking that market's oversaturated and people are leaving? Cause we've had about 50,000 people, I think leave during the pandemic from like our boots on the ground. We f- feel like people are coming back. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It's always two sides of the equations, both supply and demand. Historically, Toronto's added 125,000 new residents a year. New supply has been in that 35 to 50,000 new units per year. So that's what's created the perennial upward pressure on prices is because demand has exceeded supply, which is why eventually, you know, the city of Toronto will run out of land when it hits Georgian Bay. Uh, And so that's that's the driver. Now, we've gone through a year with next to no immigration, largely driven by the pandemic. If what the federal government is saying is true, that this year will bring 350,000 people into the country and continue to do so for the next two, three years, I don't see the supply uh, to, to, to meet that demand. Yes, there's 30,000 units for rent in the core of Toronto. That's unprecedented. Uh, that'll get soaked up. We start bringing in that amount of immigration. Uh, I mean, Ottawa's full. We don't have the inventory. Uh, Vancouver's full. Calgary's got a bit of room. Edmonton's got a bit of room. Where would you put 350,000 people today if they landed up on our doorstep? It's not obvious. Layer on top of that, we have a large number of Canadian citizens currently residing in Hong Kong. Official numbers, 300,000. Unofficial number, half a million. With the changing regulations in Hong Kong, uh, I think it was in January of this year, it was announced that if you had dual citizenship, you had to choose. Um, that's both whether you had British nationality overseas or a Canadian passport, U.S. passport. 85,000 American citizens in Hong Kong, 5.7 million with BNO status, British nationality overseas status in Hong Kong. If we had 300,000 Canadian citizens, this is not immigration, arrive on our doorstep tomorrow because they decided Hong Kong wasn't the place to be anymore, where would they go? It's not obvious. So I think there's going to continue to be uh, a a supply-demand imbalance in Toronto where there's more demand than supply. I think what we've experienced this past year is a temporary blip, and it's an opportunity to uh, acquire, or if you want to get a decent apartment for rent within a couple of blocks of the CN Tower for 1600 a month, jump on it now because uh, it's not coming back next year or the year after. That's what those are my thoughts. Now, are you, are you surprised? I'm, and and, and I'm, I kind of know your answer. I guess the, the, the real question is, is why do you think this is happening? But end of 2020, we saw uh, a little over 13%, 13.1% year-over-year increase in average pricing. Q1 of 2021, we saw a little over 21%. What's uh, what's your thoughts? I mean, with 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 immigration, only fifteen percent of what we're used to seeing in twenty twenty actually came here. So we right. were down by eighty five percent. I mean, I, even me, 
as a broker, you know, I was just at the start of this lockdown. So what was that mid-March of 2020? I was just like, I hope the values just stay like they just stay neutral. And then the first month, I think I saw like 3.1% increase. I was like, okay, this is, this is good. Like, I can't see it going up by that much more when we don't have the people coming in. Like that's what Toronto hangs our hat on. Yeah. That's what, that's what we do here. But to see, to end up at 13.1%, I mean, I couldn't even explain it. Thoughts, feedback. What do you, like, what do you, what do you put that on Victor? Number one, I think people are not moving. Uh, unless they really have to or really want to. So the fact that there's so little supply coming on the market, it, it for whatever reason, people in the pandemic environment feel safer going into a, moving into a place than allowing people to come in huh. and, and do showings in their, in their own place. So at some point, you see, I mean, we're all playing amateur economist here, right? And looking at what are the some of the headwinds and tailwinds that are facing us. You've got one of the headwinds, clearly the pandemic. You've got people that are not moving. You've got immigration. You've got demographics, people aging out of the current neighborhood that, that they live in. Now, there's so many people that say, well, I could sell my place. I could make a gazillion dollars if I sell, but I don't want to leave the neighborhood that I've lived in for the last 30 years. So if I sell, where do I go? How do I buy back in? Can I afford to buy back in? They say, well, I can't afford to buy back in, so I'll stay put. I'm not selling. And we see that all over. At a certain point, it'll reach a tipping point. They'll age out of their current home. They want something that's lock and leave, that's lower maintenance. They don't have to cut the grass, shovel the snow. And at a certain point, that'll happen. It'll, and it'll happen quickly. We'll see a tipping point. You know, we talk about the number of baby boomers in the United States. They say, you know, baby boomers are retiring at 10,000 a day. What happens when we reach that point, maybe a decade from now, when we have that many people entering assisted living, which means they're exiting home ownership. So now you've got a lot of supply coming into the market in a very short time period. Is the household formation of people in their 30s going to absorb that supply? And is that supply going to end up in the places where people where it actually matches the demand. We don't know. We're all playing amateur economist here, trying to make sense out of all these different countervailing forces. I hate being an amateur economist. Well, <laughs> and, you, and, and you left your crystal ball at home, obviously. Right. Right. I mean, look, uh, when population starts to decline out of natural demographics, like we saw in Japan, population peaked much earlier than it did here. Today in Japan, there's 11 million vacant homes. That's a big number. Yeah, that's a huge number. That's a huge number, right? And it's all driven by demographics. People talk about Japan's lost decade. Well, Japan's lost decade coincided with the peak in population. Population started to decline at that point. Now, Japan does not have significant immigration. Uh, Russia, same thing. Their population's declining. Um, you know, population in the United States will decline as well. Population Canada is actually declining. It's being offset by immigration. Mm. Right. Right. Now, now, when you spoke about Japan again, just for my own interest, mm -hmm. I take it that's outside of Tokyo. Like that's like wh wh where are those vacant properties They're sitting? All over. 
all over the place. All over. I, yeah. I mean, used to be Tokyo was the most expensive real estate in the world. Mm -hmm. Today, it's still expensive. But uh, yeah, you can get places fairly inexpensively because there's so much more supply than demand. And Tokyo is not one city. It's a whole bunch of cities. It stretches from Yokohama all the way to Chiba, I mean, and beyond. So there's many, many uh, it's really one continuous city that goes up the entire coast there. And one thing that we never mentioned as well, I mean, just interest rates, right? I mean, yeah. one of the main reasons we saw the numbers in 2020 as they were in, in, in Q1 here in uh, 2021 is because you can actually lock in a five-year mortgage. And in all the years you've been doing this, Victor, I'm sure you haven't seen a 1.5%, 1.6, year fixed mortgage rate. Well, I mean, certainly that, that that helps for sure. The thing that, I mean, I kind of put that in the category of free money. But then I almost view anything below 5% as free money. Because if, if I'm making an investment, and I'm speaking strictly as a professional investor, if I'm making an investment and I can't see how to do way better than 5%, I'm talking, you know, 20, 24% on an annualized basis. If I can't see way clear on how to do that, then there's no point investing. So I want to see interest rates kind of below that 5% target. But if, if we're below 5%, man, that's free money. It, it, it's kind of all the, almost all the same. Well, I love what you said. I'm not sure if the viewers and listeners caught it. I mean, what, what Victor's looking for and professional investors like yourself are looking for that 23 to 28% on year over year return that when you're seeing that type of return and paying out 5%, I mean, you're still winning Gladly. by 19%. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. we're talking to clients and look, I can, I, I'm tapped out in getting mortgages. No, you're tapped out of getting mortgages with one of the financial yeah. institutions and, or, At and, or less know, than 2%, even yeah. a mortgage broker, but there's private lenders and some private lenders, you can pick up a mortgage for seven, 8%. If you're making 29% return, like you got to think about it logically and see the forest for the trees. And unfortunately not everyone does. Well, I feel like this has taken us completely full circle because right when we started this discussion today, we were talking Victor about uh, 2008 and how in hindsight, looking back, you wish you had made some, some different moves at that time, or you wish you had seen more of an opportunity. And we've been saying it for a year now, like this has been an incredible opportunity for a lot of people. If you just, you know, change your lens at which you look at something and, and look at the numbers, look at the data, where are, where is this going? Like what are interest rates going to do? Where's the population going to come from? How many houses are we building in any area? It doesn't have to be just Toronto specific. You'll find that there's a lot of opportunity around. Well, Victor mentioned it as well. Downtown Toronto condos in, in August of 2020 were down in values by 10% compared to pre-COVID. As we sit right now at the start of Q2 of 2021, they're down 5%. So the, like it hit rock bottom. The rebound is happening. There's still space in terms of white space and opportunity to make money. I, I was saying it a year ago. Guys, downtown Toronto condos are for sale. Like, like we haven't seen this in a very long time where values actually dropped. I mean, I should have made a couple of investments outside of real estate. One was Zoom, 
because I was an <laughs> idiot because we were on Zoom. We were already on it. I we know. were already on it for a year and a half because like, of our, our our international, well, really more 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 like our West Coast investors. We were doing this for a long time. And even RBC's bank uh, uh, stock rates, I mean, what they, I think they went down to at one point, like I think it was 65 Dollars. I, I, I got. I'm gonna look back. I'll have the team uh, pull it out. But now, I mean, it's it, it's grown as well. But downtown Toronto condos. We saw this happening. Yeah. We knew this was coming, and now you're starting to see the values up. I want to change the conversation a little bit, Victor, because as a fellow podcaster, um, we have a lot of business people that listen and entrepreneurs talk about your podcast specifically. Um, we obviously mentioned the name, but feel free to mention that again, but team, make sure we put it in the, in the description here. How did that all come about? And what, what have you learned about yourself just being a podcaster? It's been a fascinating journey. I started listening to podcasts, believe it or not, in the early 2000s, um, back they, before they it was even called. back then? <laughs> well, when the iPod first came out and it was still had the little wheel on the front and all of that, you could download podcasts. And I got hooked on a lecture series from Stanford University called the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. And they were publishing lectures from Stanford University way back then. Uh, so that that's when I first got hooked on on podcasting was way 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 back then and uh, got hooked on the entrepreneur um, entrepreneur on fire uh, podcast oh, yeah. with uh, John Lee Dumas. Yep. Uh, developed a bit of a relationship with him. Uh, was in fact a guest on his show, and I mean he's done over a hundred hundred million downloads. He was in fact just a guest on my show a couple of weeks ago. And I made a decision back then because he was running a daily show seven days a week. And I said, wow, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And there's, it's one thing to put out an episode once a week or once a month, but to do it daily is a different, it's a different heartbeat and it can be a bit of a hamster wheel. But I made, when I made that decision to put on a daily show, I was trying to come up with something that would fill a gap in the marketplace. There's lots of shows that are interview style, 45 minutes to an hour, and there's a lot of great shows, but people only have finite time. That is the listener has finite time. So if they're going to listen to me or to you, and they already subscribe to six or seven shows, who are you going to kick out? Are you going to eliminate Oprah Winfrey? Are you going to eliminate uh, Tim Ferriss? Like, you know, be realistic. Who are you going to kick off their list of shows that they listen to? So how could I design a show that would compete without competing? And I said, well, what, what if we had a show that was literally your morning shot of what's new in the world of investing? And we just did that as a five-minute episode, just me on the weekdays, and then did the weekend edition with interviews from notable people from the world of investing. And then target not just the broad audience of rookie investors on up, but that more advanced audience, that those folks that already have established a portfolio and maybe they've hit a ceiling, maybe they're 50 units and they want to get to 500, but they don't know how. Speak to that very specific avatar, that specific uh, listener, then that would be differentiated enough in the marketplace so I could, in fact, compete without competing because it's a different segment. And the feedback from the listeners has been that it's, number one, it's working. Number two, that they listen to my show first ahead of some of the more established shows because they know they can commit to five minutes 
they can't necessarily commit to 45 minutes to an hour. And so now we just broke, I think, 1.3 million downloads. The show's doing great. Uh, it's a Real Estate Espresso podcast, and it's on pretty much every podcasting platform out there. So wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll, you're sure to find it. Now I get it. It's that quick hit in the it, morning, like espresso. Makes you sense. Get, you didn't get it when I first told you earlier, like why his Well, name? I just thought he really liked espresso. No, I didn't like, know it was a five-minute quick, quick hitter. In it's the morning. just a, a quick little shot of espresso. It's awesome. And, and 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 all my listeners and viewers, there is no competition. I love everything that Victor's doing. Go, obviously, Victor, you can find it on any podcast platform, right? Yes. Okay, so just yep. go search it. It's in the link. Uh, sorry, it's in the description. Um, make sure you give him feedback as well, because I know he's always open to it. I love the fact, especially for my listeners and viewers, it's it's a fantastic compliment to what we're doing because we are speaking more to beginner investors, the, the guys and the gals that are from that zero to maybe 25, 30 doors. And then you're taking it to the, the next, next level. level yeah. And I love it. It's so if you're watching or you're listening right now, do yourself a favor. This guy's lineup is second to none. Well, Sp jazz was on it. Well, sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, well I, I'm not sure if you caught it, Laura, but, Victor was saying like five minutes. I think I went 23 minutes or yeah, 25 minutes. Jazz, jazz. I, yeah. Well, the weekend um, edition are longer. The weekend <laughs> oh, edition. We go, okay. Oh, Jazz yeah. got a weekend. Oh, right. That's an interview <laughs> yeah. style. That is an interview it. style. I love it. Um, Victor, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really appreciate this. Uh, we've known each other for a very, very long time, but now we're starting to collaborate a little bit more. And a uh, uh, big shout out to a mutual friend of ours that's no longer here, Mr. Simon Janini. I mean, if... Yeah. Uh, uh, he didn't cross our paths. You and I might not have met each other when we did maybe a decade ago. But as I was mentioning, we're really starting to uh, uh, collaborate and, and do more things. I'm very excited, not only uh, uh, for what you're up to and what we're up to, but what I think we might be able to do together. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was lots of fun. And we'll, we'll speak soon. Take care. You're now in the Jazz Tacker Podcast.